Thank you for listening to What About That podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe, and give us a star rating, hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks, so be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In the final part of this two-part series, Dr. Chris Kevorkian, a climate thanatologist from Washington State, continues to share her experience and insights into environmental and ecological grief. She tells us about the importance and responsibility we have as human beings to cultivate a strong connection to our natural world and to educate ourselves about how important this connection is, both for we humans and for the natural world, so we can coexist in harmony, rather than continuing this move towards more and more extinctions. So why do you think it is that we, you know, dismiss or at the very least minimise or deflect this interdependence and interconnectedness? I don't know. I, I would only speculate. I, th- I think it would be very difficult for people to recognise it because they would have to change their lives so much. Mm. And I, I think it would be painful to realize the damage that we've done. You know, if you're a family of, of five or more, how do, you, how do you justify that today? How do you justify building a 10,000-square-foot home or a 3,000-square-foot home? How do you justify killing animals for your food? Mm. How do you justify all the waste? Uh, I think there's a lot there. I'd love to know the answer. I I just continue to do what I can to make a difference. And I just wish that people would stop looking at nature as something that we have to overcome and somehow beat instead of living with her and appreciating and respecting her. Because it does seem to be a much more contemporary way of existing, It seems to me that historically, at least in some areas of the world, people did live much more in harmony, you know, with their environment. And of course, in some places still do. But, you know, I don't know, I wonder whether sometimes, you know, for example, the Industrial Revolution has, Mm -hmm. has taken us away from this, what, you know, was once upon a time, a much more connected world in terms of nature and humanity. Yeah, I have. I remember when I moved to the area I live in now, and I was looking at at the land here. And when I, when a person was looking at the land next door, and I asked about, you know, are you going to make sure you keep as many trees? And the person said, "Oh God, no, no. My wife likes the sun. We're going to cut down every tree." Mm-hmm. And I wondered why would you live in Washington State where it's very rainy here? Why would you want to do that if you want sun? So it's, it's you know, we're really good at changing the climate where we are. We're able to, to control so much of how we live, you know, just as far as weather's concerned. We have, you know, air conditioning, heating. We've got it in our homes, in our cars. We've got control over so much. And yet we just don't seem to understand that nature has the last word on all of it in that we need to really respect her and 
not continue to destroy and change and shift everything about her. To me, and, and I know you, you're aware of this because you've worked in hospice and, and the fact that it's just, at times it just seems like we're putting our planet on life support, realizing that, again, she can live without us, but we're, we're pushing her to the limits. And I think I was hoping that the pandemic would show people that we need to do better and that we realize how important our connection with nature is, considering everybody and their brother was complaining about being stuck inside, and then people were saying, oh, go out in nature, and then people realizing how much of a benefit that was for them. But then my question was always, well, so you're getting a benefit from nature, but how are you benefiting her? Yes, it is. It's about how do we repay the kindness, isn't it? We, we don't see it as a kindness, though. As a property, it's what can we benefit from her? What what commodity can she provide for us? And that's the problem. We put a price on, on everything. We put a, pi- a price on the trees. On People will, we're focusing on the Southern resident orcas because we believe that people can connect and resonate more with them than with the sea at large. We can justify, you know, loving a dog or a cat, but not a spider, because a spider isn't cute. Instead of recognizing that everything that we have here has a reason for survival, just as we do. We don't have to put a value on that, though. Why can't we just allow a being to survive just to survive? So how do you think we can address some of these things? Because, um, as you say, the reality is that our uh, environment is changing, our ecosystems. I just saw something on the news here this week in Australia where it was saying that some animals are changing their shape in order to deal with climate change. You know, their beaks are growing longer and their bodies are shrinking and these sorts of things are happening. I mean, it was really interesting because it's humans that can't make those adjustments. You know, animals do have some capacity, I guess, to how can we make an impact or how can we affect some sense of shifting consciousness around these sorts of things? I, boy, you ask such great questions and I wish I had such better answers for you. (laughs) Um, I can just tell you that I, I think it's important to look at what we're doing individually and recognize that there's only so much we can do, not to say that we're limited in any way, But one thing that I've noticed within a lot of the language here in the U.S. is that people are feeling more responsible for what the corporations are doing, but not putting the responsibility on the corporations for their destruction. People are concerned about their carbon footprint, and that terminology came from the fossil fuel industry, uh, trying to make us feel guilty for everything we do. Mm. So individually we can we can make changes and we can adapt i would hope that people would look at the foods they choose to eat what they do for a living how they uh, find different jobs if they're in work that is more destructive of our planet but again i i think what i find fascinating is that things are changing it's just not as fast as we liked or maybe too fast for some because people are recognizing that systems have to change. We're not tolerating abuses so much as we did before. We've got people speaking out 
on on all manner of systems. So I, I think things are changing, but I, I do get amazed at how well animals are able to adapt and how quickly they adapt as opposed to humans. I mean, we still have people complaining about wearing a mask. It's just animals have to adapt. They get kicked out of their homes in order for us to build more homes, and yet they somehow manage. But God, seriously, I wish I had way better answers because you're asking some incredible questions that I feel like we need to ask the Dalai Lama or <laughs> Thich Nhat Hanh or somebody because I don't have their wisdom. I wish I did. But you have a lot of experience because you've been working in this field now for, for such a long time. I'm also wondering, a lot of work that you're doing is about fighting for the rights of animals and their and their ecosystems. So how does education affect that? And how can we bring education uh, into the broader community about these issues, do you think? Well, that's that's a, a tough one, because my group has struggled, and, and I understand with rights of nature, it's a different, it, it's such a paradigm shift. In the environmental movement, we're so used to protesting and writing letters and calling our representatives and and taking actions like that, that sitting back and asking people to work towards changing laws is, is something that's a little bit different. But we have to first educate people about what's happening on our planet. And a lot of people just aren't all that aware. And I teach in a couple different programs in graduate schools for graduate social work and graduate psychology programs. And I find it interesting that many of my students aren't as aware of climate change as I would have hoped. I think people just, like with most things, don't don't recognize issues unless they themselves are faced with them. So it's like cancer. If you've never had a loved one die from cancer, you don't really understand how devastating that is. And so I think it would be, it would behoove all of us if we could be more empathetic and compassionate towards one another. And that would be the first start because if we can't care and love for another human being, it's harder to ask those people to care and love for another being, a non-human animal. It really is about, uh, like you said a little bit earlier, you know, this emotional disconnect where we've been yes. very conditioned to put up barriers and to put up walls and be very protective of ourselves. And I wonder if that has something to do with this disparity or this lack of consciousness or conscience even right. about destroying nature and destroying animals without really a, a second thought in some cases, such a strong separation between us and them. Yeah, I think it comes back to the whole idea that, that people still consider animals as property, that they don't have feelings. We we say, I, I remember my parents always telling me, quit anthropomorphizing. It would be horrible if, if I mentioned how my dog might have felt when I was a kid, like my dog's sad. Oh, no, quit anthropomorphizing. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, people refer to their cars, you know, giving them names. Yes. And things, and so it's it's very odd how we choose this, but I, I think it all just goes back to the fact that we don't want to accept the fact that we we could harm another as as we do. So I I think we need to start 
being accountable for our actions and stop doing so much harm to our loved ones and our, our wild cousins because we we need everybody. It sounds like it's a, it's very much a values-based situation. You know, it's either we've, as human beings, we either value nature, value the environment and value our interdependence, or we don't. It doesn't seem to me like there's a really, there's very much of a gray area. Yeah, and it comes down to the relationships. Um, We know that, at least in the U.S., when it comes to bereavement leave, for example, it depends in some organizations, it depends on the relationship. If the person is a mother or perhaps a mother-in-law, you will get time off. But if it's a cousin, you won't. Mm -hmm. Instead of recognizing, how do I value that relationship? What if I was closer to my cousin than I was to a mother or somebody else? And that's how people view grief. It's, It's, but we view everything that way. We when I was interviewing people for my dissertation on the research of environmental grief, and there was a, a person who was saying, you know, I feel horrible about the loss of one of the Southern residents. And I think it would feel similar to me losing a brother. And that person was asked about that by somebody else later on that day and said, how could you possibly think that way? Mm-hmm. How could you possibly compare the loss of a whale with the loss of your brother? And she was so humiliated that she asked me to just delete everything about her from my research. But that happens. We have people. It depends on the relationship. And we're not the people to judge. We should never judge how somebody feels about another. It's their relationship. It has absolutely nothing to do with us. And yet we insert our judgment in all of this. So we can't say that if a Southern resident if the population were to go extinct as it's, it may likely do, why can't we grieve that? Why can't we feel sad? Why can't we fight to serve, to save them as best we can? Why can't we do that for any living being? Why shouldn't we be doing that for every living being? That's the, the more interesting question. Right. It's why we are dismissive of other creatures. I'm just curious whether or not you think there's any relationship between our death denial and our denial of our, our interconnectedness with um, with climate and environment and ecology. I definitely think there's a connection. I mean, <laughs> as I mentioned, I'm originally from Los Angeles, and boy, it always cracks me up when I talk to people about death and their response was, well, if I die, <laughs> it's, just like, it's, it's not a question of if, yes. it's when you're going to die. And the fact that people still continue to use that language is just it's kind of mind blowing, but I, I think that it's the same, but it goes back again in in response to your question, it goes back to who's being, who's having to react to these things like, like the cancer diagnosis. If people are impacted by climate change, uh, the wildfires, the storms, the hurricanes, all of that, people start thinking about it a little bit more. But for those who, who aren't reacting or, or pardon me, aren't experiencing those things, I think it's harder for them to connect. I, I still I still don't understand that there are actually people who are saying, oh, well, you know, climate change isn't real. It's just something that happens every now and again when each year we're breaking records for heat mm-hmm. and storms and intensities and people are still denying it as best they can. And I think it might just come down to the fact that if you have to recognize it, it's 
it's just it's too big to recognize because you may not know what to do about it. There's a big difference between an intellectual understanding and an emotional understanding or an experiential understanding. So many of us are, are, you know, we don't have that personal experience. We're hearing it through somebody else or what we might see in pictures on the internet or whatever. And that's very easy to create distance from that. And even if if we do have the the experiences it's still it's something you know politically here in the u.s it's it's people just don't want to acknowledge it i live in a community where we had uh, smoke from wildfires and our city council made the conscious choice of deleting any sort of language of climate change in any of their documents so climate you know hey delete it it doesn't exist right (laughs) it's just it's just kind of ridiculous but I, I think it's people just want to go on as business as usual because it's too hard to change. And it, it's not. People have been changing. I mean, a, again, we could look at nature to teach us how to better change, how to better adapt. And we have all the tools. It's just that people are reluctant to make those changes. Yes. And I mean, that's in every part of our lives, isn't it? We don't like change. We want to be in control. And, you know, we see evolution as threatening, (laughs) I guess, I suppose. I don't know. Again, I think it goes back to the whole thing. If we're not going to respect one another, how are we going to respect nature? Sure. If we're going to just look purely from the human existence, from humanity's perspective, What do we gain from protecting endangered animals and their homes? And what do we lose from their extinction, whether it's plants or animals? Another really tough question. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I think, again, when, when I heard you asking the question, the first thing that comes to mind is that People may want to save the animals that they think are cute. So it's, again, there's a value placed on it. There's a commodity. There's a price. We don't, just as we've never explored the oceans as as much as, as we'd like, we still haven't explored and connected with nature as we should. We're looking at other planets to inhabit while we destroy our own. I think it's uh, it's such a huge question. Mm. What about extinction? I mean, we, for example, here in Australia, you know, we've had many animals become extinct. What impact does the extinction of animals have on, you know, the environment and ecosystems? Because ecosystems and and uh, biodiversity are such subtle. They have such subtle relationships, don't they? Right. We depend on one another and we never realize how much until that other is gone. Mm. And that's the concern that I have about all of this is, you know, and, and they've done studies where they find when one ecosystem is missing from a larger ecosystem, when one animal is missing, the ecosystem changes, everything changes. And we just don't recognize that enough. Uh, we think it's okay to destroy or here it, it just th- there's just so much that we're destroying willy-nilly without thinking about it and to me it's it's almost like you know you're taking out the appendix you're taking out your tonsils 
And I remember I had a pediatrician who I absolutely adored and continued to see when I was well into my 30s. Um, And I was older than the parents bringing their kids in to see him. But he was awesome because uh, I had horrible tonsillitis when I was a kid. And he just refused to remove my tonsils. He said, you know, and he was an older Jewish man. And he always said, God put them there for a reason. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not taking them out. <laughs> and yeah. so it just, it reminds me of, of everything here. There's a reason everything is, is here. There's a reason we have everything on our planet. Why do we keep destroying so much of it? We don't know what the reason is. We don't know what, what purpose something might serve. But again, in my thinking, it's why does anything have to serve a purpose to exist? Just being alive is purpose enough. (laughs) So then finally, how has your research and your work over the years changed your own view of life and death, both in terms of the natural world, but also in terms of your own mortality? Death has been something that I've been connected with forever, um, just because of the teachings from my grandfather and in grief. And so I feel like I learn so much from grief and loss. I I embrace grief and loss as painful as those experiences can be. I I embrace and and do my best to learn from them because they're part of life. And to me, they just keep pushing me to live a more full, beautiful life and appreciate all that I have all the time. And and I, I so wish that other people could view grief as, as a lesson, as a teacher, instead of wanting to suppress grief all the time. I am doing my best to do what I can before I die, because I never know when my number is up. Yes. I don't know my expiration date, but <laughs> I just want to um, do what I can while I'm here with the time that I have. When it comes to nature and, and animals, I, I follow what I've learned from rights of nature in that I have a beautiful place where I get to live and I see my place here as the caretaker, as the caregiver of everyone I live with, trees, plants, shrubs, squirrels, chipmunks, deer, bear, everybody. Mm. Um, I'm here as, as their caregiver and live with them as best I can. As long as they're outside and I'm inside, we're good. I get to go out sometime and play, but I prefer they stay outside. If they come inside, then we find a way to get them outside again. Um, And if Bear comes back and destroys my gate, that's fine. Obviously, he's got to get the bird suet that I have there. But it's, it's doing my best to live with them and to learn from them constantly because I am not better than them. They are my family. They are my kin. And I want to respect them as as much as I can, because without them, what's really the purpose? For anything living, death is inevitable. So no matter what it is, whether it's environmental or, or animal, anything that's living is going to at some point or another die. But I think that's a really you know beautiful point is that all nature is our kin. You know, they are our family and our propensity to destroy rather than support uh, just sort of seems contrary to the human 
ability to be compassionate and caring. Yeah, and to me, there, you know, it's a family of of love and connectedness and companionship. And I'm grateful for the family that I get to live with here and that I get to recognize them because of the evolutionary process I've had through the rights of nature movement, which has really taught me to appreciate and respect everyone around me and watching my language. I I think I've used it already in this interview to refer to an animal and I hate it when, when people do that and I apologize <laughs> to Lady Gaia, forgive me for that. But I I think it's just in so so important how we choose our words to describe our our kin, our our love, our relationships, all of it. There's so much out there to appreciate and to love and and cherish. And I wish we could do that more because uh, you all experience that you've you know, the Great Barrier Reef, the wildfires, losing the koala, kangaroos, everybody, the animals, everybody. Uh, it's it's too much for a lot of us to take. And it's important that we recognize that. We recognize our grief and appreciate that that we are grieving, that we're connected enough to grieve the loss of someone, something we love and cherish. But to harness that grief and to take action is so vitally important or people just get stuck. And and I hope that people can move through and use their grief to take action and make a difference. Wonderful. Well, on a wonderful note to end, (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time uh, to speak with me today. I really, really do appreciate it. It's an absolutely fascinating topic. And uh, I think oftentimes people don't equate death to environment and nature but of course it's exactly the same you know as as humans so I really do uh, thank you for taking some time and participating in our what about death podcast and I really wish you all the very best in your work and the rights of nature it's a wonderful cause and I hope everything goes well with your whales (laughs) thank you so much thank you so much for your time excellent thank you in the next episode of What About Death, I speak with Dr. Tess Moyake Maxwell, a research fellow at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and a founding member of the Te Arai Palliative Care and End of Life Research Group. Tess tells us about the view of dying and death from her perspective as a Maori woman and from her extensive experience, both personally and professionally, researching palliative and end-of-life care for the Indigenous people of New Zealand. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to What About Death podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.